Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... Are you prepared to go to jail? Absolutely, absolutely. At the moment, I have no fear of jail at all. I've got a lot of public support. David McBride, former military lawyer and whistleblower, changed his plea to guilty in his recent trial and is awaiting sentencing. He is also the son of Dr William McBride, who discovered thalidomide as the cause of many horrific birth defects, and is at Parliament House today for the apology from the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader. Also on the program... We want teachers to be engaged, uh, excited about their work, because they do do incredible work. It's a really exciting profession in which you get to support young people to flourish. Teacher attention is a huge problem for the education system and according to a new report, teachers need greater support to deal with challenges in the classroom. But first, the government has issued an apology to the victims of thalidomide over 60 years after the use of the drug was restricted. The aftermath of the thalidomide crisis led to the formation of the Australian Drug Evaluation Committee, now the Therapeutic Goods Administration. However, a national apology and acknowledgement of the crisis had never been issued until today. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese issued the policy in Parliament this morning. To the survivors, we apologise for the pain thalidomide has inflicted on each and every one of you each and every day. We are sorry. Stephen Samara spoke with fellow in medicines use and safety at Flinders University, Dr Luke Greskoviak, about the harm that thalidomide caused and how it came to be sold in Australia. Back then, we didn't have the stringent systems in place that we do nowadays. So there was no strong requirements around the types of testing that is expected. Back then, you were able to more widely promote its use. So it was promoted as a wonder treatment for for nausea in pregnancy, despite the fact that they'd never actually done a clinical trial to see whether or not it was effective or safe to use in in pregnant individuals. And so really in part that's the, the lax approach that existed back then from a regulatory perspective. And that's part of the key recognition of this national apology is around the fact that there weren't the systems in place that were necessary to protect uh, people from from this medication. So how did thalidomide affect medicine and drug development after it was banned? Yeah, so thalidomide really had very strong ripple effects in the sense that it was not long after the tragedy uh, became apparent that uh, whole systems changed in many countries around the world, including Australia, where it led to the development of the Australian Drug and Evaluation Committee a couple of years later which was really tasked and governed with uh, assessing and and scrutinising medicines that were trying to come into Australia, but also scrutinising those that were already uh, being used. So what were some of the unseen effects of thalidomide? Yeah, so the effects of thalidomide exposure in pregnancy were very profound. So physical uh, deformities, so children being born with absent arms or absent legs, there is a range of, I guess, more internal, less visible birth defects. So that includes things like sensorineural uh, loss, so hearing loss, uh, vision loss, nerve damage, uh, and can also affect internal organs. And of course, that has profound 
ongoing effects for those that were exposed. More broadly, of course, there's a huge impact on the families and particularly when we're talking about the mothers of these children. And of course, that profound sense of failure that's inherent in being a parent and thinking that in any way you could have done or or something that you did has harmed your child. And that's something that those individuals have obviously had to live with and will continue to live with uh, and certainly this apology that, that we've seen today is in many cases directed at all of those that have been affected. How can the government provide further reparations after this apology? Yeah, certainly. So there was a 2019 Senate inquiry on the thalidomide tragedy, and that outlined a number of key recommendations that the government has sort of slowly uh, stepped through uh, addressing. One of those recommendations was about providing a formal national apology, which obviously we've seen come out today. Other aspects or recommendations were about identifying those that were impacted by this and providing financial contributions to support their ongoing care, of which is quite significant, as you can imagine, given the profound disabilities involved. And so the government has been slowly kind of rolling that out and providing that support. Could we see another crisis uh, like the one with thalidomide? I think it's very unlikely we're going to see something of a similar magnitude to thalidomide. I think that certainly is something that really stands out. And if you go back through history, it's been one of the most profound medical failures or biggest pharmaceutical scandals, depending on which way you want to label that. We certainly have much more stringent safety mechanisms in place to ensure that we're not exposing individuals to things that could be harmful. But What's really important is that we don't swing the pendulum too far back. And the easy response, I guess, over time is just to avoid any medicines in pregnancy because that's the only guaranteed way of of avoiding potential harm. But we need to recognise that in many cases, pregnant individuals still need to be treated for a range of different medical conditions, many of which can be quite life-threatening. And so we need to ensure that we continue to have the evidence necessary to support safe and effective medicines use in these populations. And I think that's a really important sort of aspect of the legacy of thalidomide is that we make sure that we we don't continue to fail pregnant women in the sense of making sure that we have adequate evidence. Fellow in Medicines Use and Safety at Flinders University, Dr Luke Griskoviak, ending that report by Stephen Samaras. Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. ABS figures show that there is an increase in young Australians choosing part-time or casual work over future study. The increase in cost of living and university fees appear to be contributing to the issue of low enrolment rates. Samyukta Thakur asked Professor Andrew Norton at the Centre for Social Research and Methods at the Australian National University how important were university graduates for Australia's economy. Graduates are vital for many industries. 
but so are people with qualifications from the vocational sector. And so the big policy issue is getting the right balance between those two forms of education. And what do you think is contributing to the decline uh, in higher education enrollments? I think we're probably looking at a temporary decline while the Australian labour market is very strong. So at the margins, there are always some people who would rather work than study if they can. At the moment, they can get jobs, but I'm sure you know the labour market will return to more normal levels over the next few years. And that will push enrolments back up again. So as per the ABS data, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, it says that 60% of year 10 students are full-time employed. Uh, what do you think are the factors contributing to this early divergence from uh, traditional educational paths? I think that is wrong. So that's there's probably 60% who are employed, but not full-time. How important do you think is the support and guidance from family or teachers or mentors for these um, year 10 students or students who are young? So most most students still want to go to university. So there's been a survey out in the last week. So it's 60-70% depending on gender want to go to university. Um, so this is why I think in the long term we shouldn't be too concerned about recent trends. Uh, we're probably just seeing a temporary downturn. Do you think this temporary uh, downturn is also because of a higher cost of living or like high education fees because of uh, the uh, condition of economy right now? So there's been a lot of negative publicity around, particularly the indexation of student debt, which has highlighted how much debt people are holding. But I think probably the what the high cost of living is doing is probably meaning that some people are studying part-time when they would have normally studied full-time. So I've heard at least one vice-chancellor say the total number of enrolments is fairly similar to previous years, uh, but the effective study load of those is lower because so many have gone part-time. And uh, you must uh, have also heard um, about many advertisements on the radio or the television that encourages young Australians to take up um, a diploma course in hospitality or related courses instead of investing in a long time and more expensive undergrad courses. How can media and government initiative uh, contribute to reshaping a more positive narrative around pursuing higher education? I don't really think higher education has a serious image problem because look at all the student surveys, still most people want to go to university. But I think in the short term, people are attracted to shorter, easier options. And some of the vocational courses have been free uh, over the last couple of years due to government initiatives. But these are not either or alternatives. Lots of people have qualifications from both vocational education institutes and universities. What more can be done to encourage young people to pursue university degrees? Although you've said like in the coming years, more and more students um, or young Australians will um, enroll um, in a higher education course. Look, I don't think students should be encouraged as such to go to university. What they need to do is, you know, think carefully about what they're interested in and what they're good at and what options in the workplace are going to capitalise on their skills. And from that, they can make a sensible choice about what they should do after they finish school. And do you think I think there's um, kind of um, some competition coming from um, because Australia is a hub of um, many international students as well. And do you think there is a lot of competition because of these students to the Australian residents or the Australian uh, students here? Look, I don't think there is. And the practical reason for that is that the government actually caps funding for domestic students in any case. So there's only so many the universities could take, but many universities aren't even able to use all their allocated government funding because 
because the domestic demand at the moment is not there. And also, do you think there's like because of the fees disparity, as in um, the international students, they are paying much more than the Australian students. So some of the university, they prefer taking international students as compared to the domestic students. So possibly in the postgraduate market, they might do that. But really, I think most universities will be trying hard to enroll enough students at least to get their government funding, because if they don't, uh, the government might reduce their funding in the future. Professor Andrew Norton, professor in the practice of higher education policy at the Centre for Social Research and Methods at the Australian National University, speaking there with Samyukta Thakur. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. David McBride, a former military lawyer, last week pled guilty to three charges, including stealing Commonwealth information and passing it on to journalists at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. He is one of the reasons why the public now know of alleged war crimes being committed during the Australian military's time in Afghanistan. Francis Dew asked David McBride what his mindset has been since the guilty plea, what he plans to do next. We're hoping... um to appeal that legal judgment that there is no public interest uh, in the actions of uh, military officers in any circumstances. We think that that, well, I wouldn't say wrong, but we think that that is something the High Court should consider in more detail. Um, And uh, But saying that, we respect the judge's decision and... um, We're hoping, I guess, to to at least get a lot of public opinion to say, is is this the Australia we want when those that work for the government uh, don't owe anything to the public and anything to doing the right thing by Australia and simply just follow orders, whatever those orders are. And why did you decide to plead guilty in the end? Well, it was decided by the judge that there was... There was no excuse. There could never be an excuse to be whistleblower. So there was no point putting it to the jury to say I felt justified to do what I did because according to the judge's ruling, there could never be any successful justification for whistleblowing. So um, if that is the law, there was no point um, me doing anything except pleading guilty and uh uh, and then trying to really get the public opinion on side or appealing that decision. Do you think we are punishing people who tell the truth? I think we are, yes. And are you prepared to go to jail? Absolutely, absolutely. At the moment I have no fear of jail at all. I've got a lot of public support. Um, cautious about getting the, the real message out there about what I stand for, but I, I don't have any fear of sacrificing. I've always been a soldier, Uh, Part of being a soldier is being prepared to sacrifice for your country. So um, if that's what uh, I need to do in order to get um, public, public pressure on the government to change the law, that's what I'll do. And in a recent article in the AFR, you talked about the scapegoating of soldiers. What do you think Australia needs to do about how it conducts war crime investigations? We need to be honest. Uh, I think that there was an idea that the public can't handle the truth. Um, that's a mistake. It's, it's very destabilising for Western democracies to uh, decide um, secretly that the public uh, mustn't be told the truth um, and that they can stage manage things and scapegoat people who have done nothing wrong. 
and uh, lionise people who have done a lot wrong. We, I think yeah, that will eventually lead to a, a revolution or the breakdown in our democracy. We need to tell people the truth, um, even if it's unpalatable, and uh, work from that, because if the public no longer trusts the government, the whole system of democracy falls down. So how do you think the outcome of your trial will affect other whistleblowers? Well, I think a lot of people wouldn't come forward if they watched my trial. On the plus side, I tried to handle myself with dignity and I I never try to make it look like the government has destroyed me. But um, you could be forgiven if you're a potential whistleblower and you looked at me and said, saw what happened, um, that you didn't want to come forward. Unfortunately, I think that's one of the government's plans is to make... Uh, to put other whistleblowers off. They're worried about... They have a lot of secrets, not just the ones I've revealed. Witness K um, uh, and and the Bernard Caleri case showed some other unpalatable truths about uh, what our security services do. Uh, Richard Boyle has uncovered um, some sort of very ugly acts of the Australian tax office, so I guess the government is scared about who else might come forward. But um, I'm afraid that that's the wrong attitude. If if the government has done a lot of things they need to be embarrassed about, we shouldn't be discouraging people from coming forward. We need to improve this country. What sort of things do you think we need to change about our whistleblower laws? Uh, Pretty much everything. They don't work at all. They're just window dressing. Um, I tried to use them. Richard Boyle tried to use them. Um, We're both fighting for our lives in court. Um, I don't think anybody has successfully used them. Um, So they need to be reworked. A whistleblower protection authority would be a good step in the right direction whereby people... um, We have an independent body that actually looks at the merits of the case rather than the government itself being the judge and jury and executioner because they are the ones with the most secrets to hide. David McBride, former military lawyer and whistleblower, speaking there with Francis Du. Teaching remains one of the most challenging professions, with teachers expected at different times of the day to be an inspirational performer, a counsellor, an administrator, a nurturer of young adults, amongst many roles. With a national teacher shortage, a new study into teacher wellbeing is looking at the best strategies to maintain teaching staff. Stephen Hill asked New South Wales Scientia PhD student Andrew Kingsford-Smith from the School of Education how best to improve teacher wellbeing to prevent teachers leaving the profession. Teaching is a really complex profession and there's so many different roles that teachers have to do from being experts in their subject areas to teach and engage students, manage the needs of whole whole classes at a time, supporting students when they are a bit dysregulated. Um, And then you have all of the workload, a lot of marking, feedback, lesson planning, report writing. One of the things that teachers need is more support to manage all of these different challenges. My research specifically was looking at some of the work characteristics that are associated with teacher well-being, which we looked at job satisfaction and also work strain, whether teachers believe their job negatively impacts their mental or physical health. 
we need to make sure that they have the supports they need for their specific context. Schools can be really different. Teachers can experience different challenges depending on where they're working and also different opportunities. To be a teacher, learning the ropes to deal with the many factors in a classroom, you've got nearly 30 young adults. It can be like a baptism of fire when you're doing this for the first time. What advice Mm. does your research talk about as the best way to ensure teachers are able to adapt to this work environment? As you said, uh, they have 25 to 30 students to support in their classroom. And so the traditional expectation that we're going to have all students sitting there quietly being engaged isn't going to be realistic in all settings. Teachers need the support to support their students. They're also going to need professional development to help learn effective ways to manage and support challenging student behaviors. Teachers need support to manage the students if there's challenging behaviors, and that could be additional staff that can help. When you've got a a dysregulated student in the classroom and there's only one teacher and there's uh, 25 other students, you can really see why having additional staff who could help in that situation could be really beneficial. Especially being a teacher that, you know, you're going to have some good classes and you're going to have some bad classes. And sometimes it's going to be that challenge just to manage stress, particularly when there's, you know, in the classroom, there's just so many unexpected things that can bubble up. Does your work looking at what are the best techniques for teachers to deal with workplace pressures? Well, I guess one thing I would uh, challenge you there is if we take away the mindset of good and bad classes, Mm but classes that have different needs. I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record, but um, we can't quite expect something that works in one classroom to definitely work in another. In education, often when we have something that's a one-size-fits-all, it ends up potentially not fitting any sizes. Just like I was saying that we need to listen to teachers, teachers need to be supported so that they can listen to their students and provide the support that they need so they can create ways to motivate them that's self-driven, that students motivate themselves to learn. So I remember asking a principal about what he thinks the most important aspect of a school was, and he responded with the term self-efficacy, which is Mm. sort of a fostered belief in that all staff are able to achieve what they're set out to do. I was wondering how you foster this idea Self-efficacy is an important construct related to how effective teachers feel. I think it is important to note that a teacher who does have high self-efficacy still needs support. Our best teachers are ones who are working really, really hard. Well, we don't want them to burn out. A lot of teachers' workload can happen outside of the school, whether it's marking, lesson planning, report writing. That's happening outside of hours. Now, being in front of a class, I guess it can actually be quite a lonely experience. And your research recommends a greater collaboration between teaching staff to improve social connection and a sense of achievement. Can you tell us why this is so important to improving teacher well-being? Definitely. Teacher collaboration, as I said in my research, was found to be associated with teachers feeling greater job satisfaction. This could be for a couple of reasons. For one, uh, when teachers are collaborating more and they're collaborating in ways that they find meaningful, that could help foster positive relationships. And just like in any profession, when people have positive relationships, they're going to feel better about their work when they feel uh, connected. Working together could help boost our teachers' competence as they're working together to overcome those challenges. One thing that is important is that teachers are collaborating in ways that they find effective. Telling teachers, you have to collaborate for this half an hour, that might not lead to the best result. So now in smaller and rural schools, there's 
obviously sometimes a greater challenge with uh, less resources and teachers often forced to teach outside their subject speciality. Are there lessons to be learned to ensure that rural and less resourced schools are able to retain teachers? Yes. One of the things that my study looked at, the challenges and supports that are associated with well-being, and we looked at differences between teachers working in rural areas and working in metropolitan areas. And we found that teacher collaboration was both rural and metropolitan. And the challenges like uh, workload stress or challenging student behaviors was important in both areas. A unique finding we found for rural schools was that when teachers found the professional development at their school to be irrelevant, that was associated with greater job strain, feeling that their job negatively impacts their mental and physical health. Because of t- staffing shortages, it can be difficult to access relieving staff so that teachers might not have cover to take time off to do the professional development. Andrew Kingsford-Smith, PhD student at the School of Education, UNSW Scientia, speaking there with Stephen Hill. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.